People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us too as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yost, and we're your hosts. And so how do you search somebody two or three times and then they're going to argue that you thought they had a gun? Thank you for joining us for part two of the four-part series, The Mosby Effect. A show in which we continue to talk about the unexplored dimensions of a case that changed the city and policing in the process. And in doing so, hopefully shed new light on a tale that people think they know, but perhaps don't truly understand. We will explore a facet of the history of law enforcement in Baltimore that brought worldwide attention, but is still not truly understood. It is an event that changed everything, and we will delve into it deeply, all this coming up on Truth and Reconciliation. In the last episode of Truth and Reconciliation, we started to take a closer look at what we believe was a pivotal moment in the history of Baltimore's contentious relationship with policing. We decided to delve deeper and question the assumptions about the indictment of the six officers and the death of Freddie Gray. As we all already know, Gray suffered a fatal spine injury in the back of a police van after he was arrested for looking at a police officer. The officers were either acquitted or the charges against them dropped, and the media created a narrative that the indictments were a rush to judgment and unfair. And the point of this series of shows is to question that assumption and try to understand how Mosby's decisions changed everything in Baltimore. And to do so, we're going back in history first, to the last major prosecution of an officer, and how that outcome informs the import of Mosby's decision in 2015. Sean, there's a lot of things that have happened in Baltimore that people said would never happen. One of them was investigating the death of a person in police custody. Sean, how did it used to work when a, a, a person died in police custody? So what Marilyn Mosby did was create a sense of accountability when she indicted these officers. Before that, there was really no sense of accountability. They would just run out the clock when something, uh, you know, catastrophic would happen and someone would be killed. And you'd run out the clock, months would pass, and, um, you know, then there would be no real clear answers. There would be a lot of ambiguity. So that was typically how it worked. Which is where we pick up the story of the death of Edward Lamont Hunt, who was the last victim to die at the hands of police that led to significant charges. Mr. Hunt's attorney, A. Dwight Pettit, recalls how Hunt was shot in the back in January of 2008 in a North Baltimore parking lot while walking away from Baltimore police officer Tommy Sanders, who had searched him for over 10 minutes. I think it was Hamilton Shopping Center. And evidently, Officer Sanders got an attitude uh, because... uh, uh, Mr. Hunt didn't skip, dance, and jump through the hoops that uh, Officer Sanders felt he was supposed to at that particular time, enough to agitate the officer to use, in fact, deadly force. My former colleague at the Baltimore Examiner, 
Luke Broadwater, now a journalist with the Baltimore Sun, recalls how little attention was paid to police shootings 10 years ago, including this case. Yeah, we, I mean, you and I, uh, we wrote a lot of stories about this case. I remember, and I think for a while it felt like we were kind of alone on this. The other the other media and outlets in town were not interested in this story. I think there was maybe a collective of one brief uh, written in other publications about it. Um, I don't remember any TV coverage. Hardly, maybe there was some, but I don't remember any of it. Um, I don't remember any radio coverage. So it was. We were out there just writing story after story. We went to the uh, uh, candlelight vigil for the family. We um, uh, wrote follow up after follow up, and eventually uh, the uh, charges came down. And in that sense, I do feel like we were able to keep up the public pressure on this case and say something is amiss here. This something should be investigated. And the grand jury ultimately took a look at it yeah. and and concurred that this should this was a crime. Officer Tommy Sanders was charged with manslaughter. But when the case finally went to trial, it didn't go as planned. Even though there were eight witnesses who had seen Sanders frisk Hunt for at least 10 minutes. And even though those same witnesses told the story of Sanders shooting Hunt in the back, Sanders took the stand. And in emotional testimony, Sanders said he thought that Hunt had turned and may have had a gun. Even though he had been searched, even though Edward Lamont Hunt was uh, moving away from him, uh, that he had turned briefly, and in that moment, the officer, Tommy Sanders, had become alarmed that maybe the search hadn't been thorough enough, He maybe he has a gun, and maybe he's about to shoot me, and that's why he, sh- he, uh, he said he uh, fired the fatal shots. And the jury believed him. The... Uh, jury uh, uh, went with that. They said, that's fine, that's justified. And uh, so there was no conviction in that case. And so Sanders was acquitted. The, the way the system is stacked, the way it's, the way it, you know, I say the word rigged, but it is rigged. It is rigged system. Uh, rigged in favor of police. Um, po- police, in, what, you know, this is interesting. It seems like one issue that transcends racial lines in this country is the way communities hold police up on a pedestal and hold them in the highest regard. And it's and 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 we want to always give police the benefit of the, of the doubt. And that 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 trans that well before Freddie Gray, I suspect, um, uh, in black in, in in black communities, white communities, Asian communities, Hispanic communities, um, we give the police the benefit of the doubt, it seems like. After the acquittal, attorney Dwight Pettit managed to win a civil case against Sanders. But there was a catch. State law limited the award. I think in this particular case, there was a cap. Um, I'm, this was 2008. I guess we resolved it somewhere around 2010. So I'm sort of uh, straining my, my memory. But You I sold think, for 375000 Right. And I think the cap was, was at that time, 200000 what did the, how did the case, how did the, what did the jury say? Just tell us what the jury decided in terms of Ed. Well, if I recall in terms of, of Hunt, uh, I had so many of them. I recall we were in front of a judge and a jury uh, and had done opening statements and maybe uh, were preparing to go to the jury when, the fact, the case settled. Well, I mean, you know, the, the city had the situation with the cap, as I said, so they weren't intimidated by the, the money. It wasn't in federal court where the cap would not have been relevant. It was in state court. But I think at some point in time, it just became so obvious uh, that it was an indefensible position that the city had because of the of the witnesses concurring, not only that uh, what the w- civilian witnesses saw, what the 
individuals saw, but I think it became undisputed that he had been searched two to three times. And mm-hmm. so how do you search somebody two or three times and then going to argue that you thought they had a gun? After that case, despite many controversial deaths of residents at the hands of police, officers were simply not charged in Baltimore. There was a case of Anthony Anderson, who was thrown to the ground by a police officer with such force that his spleen burst and he died. And there was a case of Tyrone West, who was beaten by police for nearly 45 minutes after a traffic stop. Well, as we know, um, Greg Bernstein, who was the state's attorney then, ruled that the officer's actions were justified. And this was, I think, somewhat shocking to to people who had had reviewed the evidence because um, by his own admission, officers punched Tyrone West, officers uh, physically struck Tyrone West, um, I remember I asked Stephanie Rawlings Blake, um, who was the mayor at the time. I said, "Is that is that good police work? Can you just go up to people and punch them repeatedly? I mean, does that is that what poli- police work supposed to be about? Shouldn't there be a better way to subdue people?" And she said to me at the time, uh, "Police work is in Sunday school, Luke." In both cases, despite community uproar and questionable circumstances, police declined to prosecute. And a culture developed where prosecutors would take years, if not months, to investigate and seemed to always build a case despite the circumstances that failed to hold anyone accountable. The other two cases, or two or three cases that we had in terms of, of a back shooting by police, those cases were not prosecuted. In this particular case, uh, Ms. Jessamy, as I recall, took the bold statement, uh, the bold stand mm-hmm. of, of prosecuting, but that's why it's very difficult to get prosecutors to move forward because of exactly uh, what happened in this particular case. They put on character witnesses, in fact, I won't name who it was, but a very prominent political figure in this in the city was a character witness for Officer Sonda. And you know, you don't see any type of uh, punitive actions coming from the police department. In many cases, my experience has shown me more cases than not, the officers were, were promoted. Which meant for people like Devin Stevenson that the tortured relationship with police only got worse. Um, you never know what your encounter going to be like. Sometimes you may encounter a good officer. Most of the time you're going to encounter a bad one. Stevenson was one of many young black men who live with police overreach every day. It's, it's really, you got to play it by ear. You got to feel the mode out, for real. For me, that's how I learned how to deal with them. Like, you got to feel it out. Otherwise, this is going to go bad. And it was through that treatment, Devin said there was a message. I felt like I could be arrested at any time. Why is that? I mean, because, I mean, they uh, they judge. They, you know, they ride around, they judge you, you know. If you look like you're a problem, they're going to approach you as a problem. You could have nothing to do with anything that's going on. And a constant fear of ending up in jail. I remember a cop used to t- told us that years ago. Man, it ain't about what you say. All it's about is what I put in this report. Now, how you want your report to be? Right. Come on, like your life is in their hands at all times. That's why I say police ain't good, because our lives is in their hands. It's sad, we pay them, and our lives is in their hands. That's crazy. So how many lives do they destroy? Millions. I ain't going to say thousands. (laughs) I'm going to say millions, you know. I ain't going to say thousands. I'm going to say millions, man. But then something happened that really no one was prepared for. We have been and continue to be wholly committed to creating a fair and equitable justice system for all and holding people accountable for crimes that they commit regardless of age, race, color, sex, creed, socioeconomic status, 
or in this case, occupation. A total and utter unexpected change in the way Baltimore police were policed. And it was like the entire city changed at a moment. But a transformation that was accompanied by the pain and mistakes of the past. All that coming up in the next installment of our four-part series titled The Mosby Effect on Truth and Reconciliation. What did I do? Thank you for joining us in our four-part series, The Mosby Effect, on the real story about the indictments of six Baltimore police officers after the death of Freddie Gray. We'd like to thank our guests, civil rights attorney Dwight Pettit, Baltimore Sun reporter Luke Broadwater, and Devin Stevenson. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by myself, Taya Graham and Sean Yost for A-Spectrum Productions. Truth and Reconciliation is engineered by Sienna Greaves. And it is edited by Stephen Janis. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and check back for more episodes. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Sean Yost. And I'm Taya Graham. Thank you for joining us on Truth and Reconciliation. Truth and Reconciliation.